Awesome. Friends, go ahead and have a seat as you're sitting down. Say hi to folks around you. Do you know that we have Thanksgiving in like a week and a half? You excited about that? Oh my gosh, I know. The, uh, the fall break this year had made it, made it so that it was a lot more bearable. Would you agree with that? Like it didn't feel like we're at the, in the like 20th mile of a marathon and thinking, why did I make this decision in my life? It doesn't feel that way this year, I don't think. But I think we're all about ready for that break. I hope, though, that um, as we come in tonight, we're going to continue this story uh, together, this journey we've been on about our story. So we made a commitment in Campus Ministry that we're not going to shy away from some of the hard stuff. So we're going to be digging into some pretty intense uh, stuff tonight in God's Word. Uh, but to get caught up from what happened last time when we talked about Leviticus, another fairly heavy text, uh, and fast-forwarding into where we're at today in the book of Joshua, let's, uh, our friends here have uh, made a video, I think we have, we're good, that's going to show right now to help it happen. It won't be nearly as much fun as when Chris does it. But uh, So last week we were in Leviticus. Leviticus is a 27-chapter manual given by God, uh, our holy God, to make a way for unholy people to live in his presence. So God chooses to treasure Israel. He chooses to call them into his holy presence to, in order to make them a holy people, uh, and by God choosing to call these holy people to live in his holy presence, he creates a way through Leviticus, this a whole, I mean, dozens and dozens of different kinds of sacrifices in order for unholy people to atone for their sins so that they can live in the presence of a holy God. And so because of that, start to finish, Leviticus is all grace. So I, that was what we really focused on in, uh, in our message last week, and I think Ben focused on that down here as well. Leviticus is all grace, start to finish. It's this, uh, a holy God making a way for his treasured people um, to live in his presence. So that's Leviticus. Numbers is the journey, right? So it's uh, Genesis, Exodus is the journey out of Egypt. Leviticus sits dead in the center of God's Torah, the law, as the way of life with uh, God at the center of, uh, of his people. Then Numbers continues the story. It's the story of uh, the 40 years that um, Israel spends in the desert learning to be a new kind of people following God. So that's the whole book of Numbers. It's really the, the desert wandering journey. And every day these people were living in God's presence. Every day they go out. The, the smoke is rising up from the tabernacle as the morning offerings being given. They go collect their manna because God had rained down bread from heaven. And by the time they go to bed at night, God had provided quail for them to eat. And the smoke, again, is rising from the tabernacle. The presence of God quite literally in the center of their lives for 40 years. And then we turn the corner to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the recap of the journey, and it is the account of the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the handing over of leadership to a guy named Joshua. And we're going to pick up the story today, our story, um, with, in the book of Joshua, which is the one right after that. So if you need a Bible and you'd like to follow along, raise your hand. And we've got some hard copies uh, that can be passed out if you need one. There's one in the back there. It's also, of course, on about 50 million possible apps that you could download on your phone. Um, and we're going to be looking at uh, mostly Joshua chapter 6 today. So as you're turning there or you're flipping to it on your phone, let me just tell you that there's an immediate problem that uh, Israel encounters as they cross the Jordan River and enter the new land, the land of milk and honey, the promised land, the land God had promised Abraham hundreds of years before. Something very different happens when they cross from the uh, desert side of the Jordan over into the Canaan side of the Jordan, and that is people live there. It's not an empty space. It's an inhabited space. Unlike 
the majority of the last 40 years with this whole generation lived, for the most part, in the desert, um, just in this community with God at the center. They entered Canaan, and Canaan is inhabited. And we could spend time here, but I'm not going to. Um, in, as it is true today, it was particularly true in Canaan that the people who had, were already living there were not particularly thrilled about a group of desert nomads immigrating in and taking over their cities and land. In fact, because of their reputation, because of the reputation of Joshua and Israel had spread across the Jordan, actually had already spread because of what God had done for them in, on the other side of the river, the reputation had spread and the people of Jordan were preparing, excuse me, the people of Canaan were preparing for war against the people of God. And so in Joshua chapter 2, uh, Joshua sends spies over to investigate the land. In fact, the king of uh, this first city that you encounter when you cross the Jordan is Jericho, and the king of that land found out that these spies were there, and he sets out to kill them. But the most unlikely person hides these spies, a prostitute named Rahab, and she helps them escape the city and get back to God's people. And today we pick up the story as the whole camp of Israel now, the spies have returned, and the camp of Israel has walking across and they into the new land, and they encounter this city called Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. I'm going to read most of the chapter, so settle in for it, follow along. It's really intense, um, and it's quite a story. So here's what God's Word says in Joshua chapter 6. The gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out, no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with his king and fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carrying ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a shout. The wall of the city will collapse. The army will go up. Everyone straight in. Uh-huh. Got that? So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priest and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. Order, he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. Now when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets, before the Lord went forward blowing the trumpets and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priest. They blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. Those guys were blowing the trumpets a lot. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voice, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. And then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once, and then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priest took the, uh, up the ark of the Lord, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets, went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord, blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are in her household 
shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Keep away from devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron, they are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and the sound of the trumpet, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. Everything. Everyone charged right in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied the land, Go into the prostitute's house, bring her out and all that belonged to her in accordance to the oath that you made to her. So the young men who had done the spying went and brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out the entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city. Everything in it. They put the silver, gold, the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent out to spy Jericho. She lives among them, the Israelites, unto this day. That's the word of the Lord. It's easier to say that sometimes than others. Pretty intense, right? Wow. I'm guessing uh, the reading this whole story is quite a bit different than the story that a lot of us maybe grew up with. For those of you that uh, grew up maybe going to church and in Sunday school watching Veggie Tales, Josh and the Big Wall, right? This is a little bit different from the story that gets largely edited for the sake of making it family friendly. Uh, the lesson that we tell kids that I would indeed teach my own kids in, in going through the story is if we trust God's word, we follow God's ways, we experience God's deliverance. That is absolutely true, and it is the right thing to teach children about this, but boy, does it leave some stuff out, huh? Because the actual account itself is troubling. The whole city of Jericho, everything in it turned into a giant altar. Just like the sin offering we looked at in Leviticus chapter 4, so here the people of Jericho's blood is shed. They're slaughtered before the Lord, and the whole city is turned into a giant offering, something devoted to the Lord. Hoy. I was, when I was studying and writing on this passage this week, I remember thinking to myself on a number of occasions, why did we decide to do this again? Oh, that's right, because it's God's word, and it's a big part of God, the story that God's writing. But in order to, be, uh, to really understand this story, we've got we to gotta see it in the context of what God's doing in the world. Because I have a hunch that this story is not easily integrated uh, into how many of us think about and understand how God the Father loves the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Is that fair? So to kind of help make sense of the story, let's just zoom out. Because if you're following with us, if you've got um, our, uh, the story that we're reading together and the reading guide that accompanies it, if you don't have that, you can pick one up on your way out today. Um, there's a whole sheet of if you want to follow through and go through the whole Bible in a year with us, you can, you can read through it. And if you're going to read this story and lots and lots of other stories like it in Joshua and Judges and Samuel and the Kings, it make, you need to know how to make sense out of this story within the big picture of what God's doing in the world. So remember, at the very beginning of our journey together, there was this really big problem. 
God made this world to be a place of love and beauty and harmony where people made in God's image would live fully and completely in God's presence. And then the whole thing got screwed up, corrupted by sin. And the problem of the whole Bible really is trying to resolve this problem. How can sinful people once again live in the presence of a holy God? The whole Bible is consumed in this one question. And so God, in an act of complete mercy, chooses Abraham, Isaac, Israel, and makes out of them this holy nation that would be a prototype for how God would restore this world and restore these people to his purpose and his plan, that they could live again in his holy presence. That's the whole story of Israel within that larger narrative. Are you with me so far? Is this making sense? It's within that larger narrative that this story of God's judgment of Jericho comes. Because the story of God's judgment on Jericho is the counter-narrative to the story of God's mercy on Israel. See, with Israel, God made a way for unholy people to repent and live in the presence of a holy God. With Jericho, God demonstrates the ultimate result of a holy God coming in the midst of an unholy and unrepenting people. All the sacrifices God prescribes in the book of Leviticus that we looked at last week, all these ways to atone for sin are God making a way for his people to live in his presence, but the destruction of Jericho shows us that having a holy God come in our midst is a very dangerous proposition when we are not a holy people. Jericho heard that the Lord was coming. They knew that the Lord was with these people. But their response, shut the door, lock the gate. Is that not the quintessential picture of a heart that is unrepentant? Shut the door and lock the gate. It is a heart where the door is shut to the presence of God. And God had actually been very patient with the people of Canaan. He actually, way back in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham about his anger toward the land of Canaan and their kings. But God had showed hundreds of years of patience toward them. And yet, like Sodom, Gomorrah, the Pharaoh of Egypt, so it is true again with the king of Jericho that they shut the door and locked the gate to God's holy presence. And yet, this is the amazing thing in the story, or one of the many amazing things about the story. It's really hard to preach this story. There's a lot of stuff here to stay on point. But one of the most amazing things is that God's holy presence is coming to them. Their response is, after hundreds of years of doing the same, shut the door, lock the gate, and yet God circles Jericho for seven days. Well, for six days. No, a full seven. The presence of God in the ark, the trumpets blowing, literally God's presence was circling the city every day for a week. And Jericho will just not open the gate. 
I mean, if we really go big picture with this, Jericho is actually, ends up being kind of this temporal example of an ultimate reality of all who choose to lock the gate to God's holy presence rather than in repentance open the door to him. I mean, I, I don't like to think about this. We don't, I don't think, like to think about this, but what is hell if not a city that has locked the gate to God's holy presence and destined for destruction. A whole city, every living thing made into a sin offering for the Lord. This is a very troubling story. Everything offered to the Lord. Almost. Almost everything. Of all the people in the city, Joshua gives this very clear instruction that Rahab the prostitute, who hid the spies, helped them escape the city, should be spared. She and everyone in her house. Because unlike the king, the nobles, the rest of the city, Rahab actually opened up, quite literally, her door to the presence of God. She didn't really know what it meant, but she knew the Lord was with his people. And she knew the Lord did some amazing things. And so she very literally opens up the doors. And that is what saves her from destruction. Not only is she rescued from death. Here's the crazy thing about the story. And why it's important to, for us to spend a little time on this story as we're journeying in this way together. Not only is she saved from destruction like the rest of the city. God grafts Rahab into his story. Like, is this not the best example of the gospel? Here's this prostitute who has no business being in the presence of a holy God, who has no business being a part of the story at all, but God, she opens up the door, and God's presence enters into her life. Not only is she saved, but she becomes part of the story. Like, do you know that in this a story that only God could write, Rahab the prostitute, the only one who repents and is saved from the destruction of Jericho becomes part of the family line of King David? Is that insane? Not only that, Rahab the prostitute, the only one who is saved from destruction of Jericho, the only one in the whole city who repents, becomes part of the family line of Jesus? The king shut the door, barred the gate. Everyone else does the same thing. But Rahab, the prostitute, becomes part of the family line of the king of kings and lord of lords. And if you want to read it yourself, just go to Matthew chapter 1. You'll see her name right there. Can you believe this? Crazy town. And if God can do that with her story, he can do that with your story. Right? Right? Because the truth is, guys, we're all Rahab. Israel's story, it's the same as Rahab's story. It's the same as our story. It all starts with a holy God who show, decides, because he chooses to, to show mercy. To dwell and make a way to dwell among unholy people. To make a way for them to live in, to make a way for us, us guys, to live in his holy presence. And the thing that's required in this, 
for all of us. It was true for Abraham, it's true for Joshua, it's true for David, it's true all the way across the board. The way this works, for the presence of God to dwell among a sinful people, and for us to experience God's mercy, is repentance. In fact, this, is not, this doesn't change, actually, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. We talked about all the Levitical sacrifices and the things that needed to be done and how that changed because Christ was the ultimate sacrifice one time for all. But the, but the act of repentance is actually the same, Old Testament to New Testament. In fact, the most uh, frequent sermon of Jesus and the very first sermon he ever preached is, Repent, the kingdom of God is here. And it's that repentance that Jericho refuses to do that leads to their destruction, but that Rahab chooses to do, and it leads to her salvation. So here's the question I just want us uh, to, to bring before us tonight. I know we had to go, to, to go a pretty big picture in order to sink down into this one, to try to graft and, and reckon with this one story in the context of this much larger story that we're in. But I think what the question we want to sit with tonight is, are there places in your life that need to be repented of? And by that, I don't mean acknowledging, of, acknowledging that I need Jesus in these areas, but, but repented of in, in meaning I am going to put those things to death and turn away from them. Right? When Jesus, in this story, Rahab has to completely turn her back on a, on a way of life and enter into a new way of life that she had no idea how to do, but in God's mercy, she was brought in. It was actually true for Abraham. It's true for Isaac. It's true for Jacob. It's true for Moses. It's true every time. We have, there's a call of repentance. It's a call to turn our back on a way of life that we know is unholy and turn toward the holy presence of God. This is the call of repentance. It's, it's the call of discipleship. So is there something, some place in your life that you have locked the door and barred the gate from the holy presence of God? And if you want to know what that is, I wouldn't be surprised if even right now the Holy Spirit was circling that space the same way God's people circled Jericho. Is God bringing something to your attention right now and saying, I want to enter that place, unlock the gate, open the door, and let me in? What I'd like to do is uh, just be quiet before the Lord for a moment. Um, and my guess is, as it was, as God's people were circling Jericho in silence, only the trumpets sounding, my guess is the Holy Spirit knows exactly what he's talking, what he wants to talk to you about. So we're just going to be quiet for the Lord, before the Lord. And let the Lord speak into that space that is closed up to him. And call you into a place of repentance. And if you hear God speak to you tonight and say, that right there is closed off to me, it could be, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's an expectation of where your life is going to go, maybe it is um, a, there's so many possibilities. Um, frequently I find, especially with, um, in, in our community, it, a lot of times it hinges around relationships. 
but also oftentimes it also hinges around um, addictive sins like pornography, alcohol, lots of things of that nature. If the Lord, by his spirit, is circling around that for you right now and saying, I want to bring my holy presence into that space and make it holy because I want you to be the treasured holy person that I made you to be, and I will absolutely not relent until you open the gate for me. If you hear God speaking that to you tonight, my, uh, the invitation is to offer it up to the Lord. Open the gate so that the presence of our holy God can come in. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, your word is always powerful and it always challenges us. And tonight in particular, your word is um, sharp to us. But even in that, God, it is grace. And so we are grateful for it. We pray, Spirit of God, now those spaces in our lives that we have shut the door to you, closed the gate, and not let you in. Those places that we have not repented. Circle those places, Lord. Walk around them, Holy Spirit. Call our attention to them. Blow the trumpet. Make the sound, God, that calls our attention to your holy presence right at the gate. And God, give us the grace and the courage to do what Rahab did. To open the door and let you in. It's a scary thing, God. To let the presence of a holy God into us such unholy space. But like our ancestors bear, who bear witness and who... Many of us learned as we were, when we were children, God, we want to trust your word. We want to follow your ways, and we want to experience your deliverance. So do this good work in us, God, of entering into those spaces that are right now unholy. And sanctify them through the powerful working of your spirit. And give us the courage and grace to put them to death, to put those parts of us to death so that we can experience the resurrecting power of Jesus in those places too. We ask for that in his holy name. Lord, as we now turn to have offered those things to you and we begin to 
sing out our prayers to you, God. Hear these prayers as an offering. Hear them, Lord, sung in faith. And hear them, Lord, sung in a posture of both repentance, of walking away, but also a posture of trust, of walking toward you. So that Jesus, like Rahab, our stories are fully integrated into the big story that you're writing to redeem your world and make it the place of love and beauty and harmony that you made it to be. We want our stories to be grafted in and fully integrated into that big story. Jesus. So hear our prayers. Shape our lives. In in his Jesus powerful and holy name we all say together. Amen. Friends, would you stand as we now respond in faith to this invitation to come and repent and receive mercy and then to put our integrate our lives fully into the life that Christ is giving to us.